Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance team, and we're on this podcast to address some of the uh, benefits compliance issues that employers are facing recently. Today, we're going to tackle association health plans. Uh, We've discussed these a little bit in the past, but we felt like it would be a good topic today to further discuss the DOL's uh, recently released proposed rule on association health plans. Those were published on January 4th, ringing us into the new year. Uh, Let's start with a background, Suzanne. Why is the DOL interested in regulating association health plans or AHPs right now? Well, it, it's he, you know they discussed it back in their executive order, so I wouldn't say it's just d- made a decision recently. Um, however, I'm sure that it was spurred along by the GOP's uh, inability to pass a repeal bill. Um, but the executive office, or the I should say the administration, does look for ways that they can make uh, certainly additional flexibility in the marketplaces since we have not been able to succeed on uh, passing a repeal bill. So this bill itself really addresses the small group market. It does not touch the individual market, which is really ground zero for all of the challenges with the ACA. When we're hearing in the news, there's problems with premium increases. There's a lack of availability of various carriers. Um, and when there's issues with cost-sharing subsidies, all of that really revolves around the individual market. And now with the passage of the tax plan, there's questions on what the effect will be of the elimination of the individual mandate. Um, more on that to come, I'm certain, but for now, the focus is really on the small group market and what changes they can make there uh, to try to ease the impact of the ACA provisions that were enacted to really improve access, but have proven to be a, a bit more challenging um, with their various market reforms. How has the small group market done since the ACA was enacted? Well, better than the individual market, maybe not as good as the large group market. But I looked at the stats from the Urban Institute, which is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and they track the small group market and have been doing so since May of 2011. And what they said in the last few years, 2016 and 2017, is that there's been moderate rate increases. So um, the small group market, the smaller groups with young and healthier employees certainly faced significant premium hikes, but those that maybe weren't as young uh, saw more moderate increases. What was interesting is that there was a decline in the number of small employers offering group health plans. However, when you go back to looking at 2014, we saw really a, a larger decrease of employers offering plans with smaller employers and smaller businesses pushing their employees into the individual market. But now in the last few years, we've seen a reverse of that because of the issues in that individual market with premium increases, with a lack of uh, options in the individual market, less generous coverage. We have seen those employers re-entering into the small group market. Um, some of the other thing changes, I guess you can say, that we've seen in the small group market are uh, some additional alter- alternative arrangements, such as level funding products that have been introduced into the small group market. Nonetheless, there's a belief that this market could benefit from more flexibility and some less administrative burden on the employers. Okay, so association health plans um, by some are viewed as um, one option for offering this uh, flexibility. The president you mentioned earlier did issue an executive order, and that executive order was titled Promoting Healthcare Choice and Competition Across the United States. And in that order, the president directed the DOL specifically 
uh, to consider proposing rules to permit more employers to participate in these association health plans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that executive order? Yes, and we're going to refer to association health plans as AHPs just because we'll get tripped up when we try to say that too many times. So um, the executive order specifically stated that expanding access to AHPs will allow more more small businesses to avoid many of the ACA's costly requirements and can can allow them to overcome the competitive disadvantage of a smaller risk pool by by allowing them to group together to self-insure or purchase large group health insurance. Uh, And remember that because we'll come back to that idea in a bit. Um, But we also saw the DOL state in the rule that the rule was proposed to allow employers to join together as a single group to purchase insurance in the large group market. So the idea here is that the AHPs would be regulated, as they stated, as large group plans rather than being subject to all of those insurance mandates that are in the individual or the small group market. So those were things like modified community rating, age ban rating, um, and some of the other things that could have an impact on the premium cost and the lack of flexibility in plan design. Okay, so perhaps we see some reasons there why this was addressed in the executive order and why DOL was putting out these proposed rules. Association health plans themselves are not a new thing. So let's start with the current status of AHPs. How are they treated under the law currently, both federal and state? Right, and that's interesting you mentioned that because it is an issue under both federal law and state law. So federal law is really what they're obviously attempting to adjust here with the DOL proposed regulation. Under ERISA, it uh, looks it defines employers in a certain way, and and if you think of MIWAs, you really have two type of MIWAs, and a MIWA is a multiple employer welfare arrangement. So that's when you have various uh, types of employers that are coming together to to uh, offer benefits together, um, and you have two types. One is where the plan itself is uh, at the the MIWA level, so you have all of the ERISA obligations being. Um, complied with by the MIWA itself. Or you could have a situation where the plan is at the single employer level. And so then each employer that's a member of the MIWA would have to comply with ERISA on its own. Um, In order to get to that first level where you have the MIWA recognized, or excuse me, the plan recognized at the MIWA level, you have to see the whole association as being an employer. In order to do so, the DOL requires there be a bona fide group of employers that are bound together by this commonality of interest. So it looks for being in similar trades, similar businesses, um, and there has to be vested control of the association. So generally, the DOL, when it's reviewing AMIWA to determine whether there's actually a bona fide association or, again, whether it's just a group of individual employers, the DOL applies this facts and circumstance test and looks at various factors. One of those factors is whether the group or association has a business purpose outside of just offering benefits. This is a key factor. Um, And this is one of those factors that has uh, resulted in few associations being classified as an employer or um, having that plan exist at the MIWA level versus the individual employer level. So what we, what we typically see is that these MIWAs are treated as just a collection of plans that are separately sponsored by each individual employer. Thereby, the administration is pushed down to the employer level, so it makes it more burdensome on those small employers that are joining those those associations. Right. So each individual employer within the MIWA 
is considered as having to file a separate Form 5500. They have to create a written plan document, an SPD, and distribute that to their employees. All of those ERISA requirements. And the biggest challenge there is that it's hard for some of these groups to find a commonality of interest outside of the idea they just want to get together and buy insurance. They have to have this business purpose outside of that. And that's a huge challenge under these current rules. It, it can be, certainly. Right. So those are some of the challenges under ERISA. Tell us a little bit about the state law challenges for AHPs. Well, so the, the, um, the thing about these proposed rules is that they are not going to address state law governance over these AHPs. Uh, if you think of association health plans and some of the history behind them, back in the 70s and 80s, we saw that these plans claimed ERISA preemption if they were self-insured, removing themselves from governance by the state, and many of them ended up going bankrupt and left millions with unpaid claims because they became insolvent. Um, when we talk about ERISA, ERISA preemption, that means that they you are preempted from oversight of the state. And as we know, um, back in 1983, Congress stepped in and they amended ERISA to say, no, we are going to give the state's authority over these self-insured plans um, and let the states regulate them similar to how they regulate the, the insurance carriers that are in their states. So as a reminder, when we're talking about a MIWA, that's a multiple employer welfare arrangement. So it could generally be you could have five different businesses that are coming together if they are not under, under common control then it would be considered a MIWA if they're under a single plan. So the where the place that states have been especially effective is in overseeing the solvency of these MIWAs and, and making sure that they're not mismanaged. Again, they have a lot of experience in dealing with oversight over insurance carriers and the financial obligations there and ensuring that uh, insurance carriers don't go out of business. So they applied those same skill set uh, to oversee MIWAs. Um, the ACA then stepped in and said, okay, now that we've identified these various markets, uh, we have the large group market, the small group market, the individual market, and we've applied these additional market um, provisions to the small group and individual market, like uh, how they will rate those products. We don't want these associations being identified by how they are in the aggregate, but we want them identified by how they are individually. So if you're a member of an association, you're a small employer, you still must be rated as a small employer and if you have a, a, a fully insured plan, then that plan must be a small group market. So uh, that, again, provided some additional challenges, making association health plans not very attractive um, because you couldn't take advantage of trying to be rated at a large group level. Great job outlining the federal and state challenges here under current law for these association health plans. Let's get back to the DOL's proposed rule. Again, this came out last week. Um, tell us how that rule may relax some of these uh, current rules. Well, to begin with, that criteria that an association be formed for a purpose other than providing health insurance has been eliminated. So you can, in fact, have an association formed for that very purpose. You can have several um, businesses get together and say, we want to buy health insurance. We're going to form an association to do just that. And that could be the sole purpose for which they're forming an association. So that certainly uh, helps in that regard, and it expands the commonality of interest requirement. In the past, you had to um, have this uh, situation where employers would be in the same trade, industry, line of business, and have a principal place of business within a certain region. Now it's going to be an either-or equation. Um, so either you have a same trade, industry, line of business, or profession, or 
you could also have associations that are based merely on a geographic region. That geographic region can't go beyond the boundaries of the same state, or they're now saying a metropolitan area. There's, it's not clear yet on how they're going to define metropolitan area and whether they're going to use some type of U.S. Uh, census uh, for that definition. Um, but they did refer to places like the greater New York City area, the tri-state region, the D.C. metro area, the Kansas City metro area. Clearly, those areas cross over state lines. And so hence, you get to this idea that Trump has often pushed of selling insurance across state lines. I will say it's not the panacea that it sounds by allowing these plans to cross state lines, uh, remembering that these plans are still going to be subject to state laws, such as the MIWA laws. It will uh, have some complexity there in trying to abide by several states' laws, um, certainly as it applies to a MIWA. Right. But that's got to be at least a little bit of good news for these major metropolitan areas that you described. If I'm an employer in the D.C. area and I want to get together with a couple other employers, and one of them is in Maryland, another's in Virginia, and another's in D.C., and I'm in Maryland, we can all be considered as part of the same geographic region under these rules. Right. Same with New York, you'd have Connecticut, New Jersey, New York City. All and, and in the past, that's been a challenge because those are considered separate geographic regions under the, the uh, ERISA rules. Right. So certainly relaxes the idea of, of who can form an association. Mm-hmm. Does not relax the state laws, though. So there's the challenge. One of the other thing it, it continues to require is that the associations will be bound by those existing guidance under ERISA that requires some type of formal organizational structure. So there has to be a governing body, bylaws. The association member employers must control its functions and activities. So you could expect to hold regular election of directors, of officers, and other representatives who would make uh, decisions on the plan. So they still want some type of governance there. They still want some uh, stipulations on who can be within, with uh, covered by uh, an AHP um, for these very reasons. Right. So a little bit of a form, some formalities there that would have to be followed. An employer can't just informally get together with two or three other and decide informally without some type of written agreement that they wanted to form an association health plan. I imagine there would be some filing with the state to officially form that organization. Um, or association. So definitely some steps that would have to be taken there. Tell us though, Suzanne, who could be covered under an AHP? The coverage under an AHP would have to be limited to employees and former employees and their families of the member employers. So this generally means that it would prevent just individuals enrolling in AHP. So it, it, it wouldn't affect the individual market in that way. However, they are expanding this idea of who would be considered an employee, and it would allow a self-employed individual, who also called a working owner, to be considered both an employer and an employee for purposes of enrolling in an AHP. That obviously changes the equation as it relates to those people who couldn't previously buy small group insurance coverage if they were a self-employed individual or sole proprietor. So right now, the definition of working owner is quite broad. So any person who owns a trade or a business, whether it's incorporated or not, uh, earns a wage from self-employment and they're not, they cannot be eligible for um, subsidized employer group coverage through another employer, um, work at least 30 hours a week, for example, those would be considered uh, an eligible working owner. Uh, So pretty broad. They have asked for comments on that. They do want to make sure that there is a legitimate trade or business that exists. 
Um, but they are concerned that this is really kind of eliminating the idea of individual versus employer group products. Um, looking for comments, and I'm sure that, that we will have some of the trade associations that are providing comments there. I think this is where some of the fear will be of um, the effects that it will have on the individual market, but we could also see some Medicaid in, uh, enrollees decide that they want to, to enroll in an association group health plan instead, um, because many of those Medicaid um, um, beneficiaries are self-employed. So we may see some, some effect there. Right. So as eligibility for AHPs expands into this world of sole proprietors and, and working owners, um, there are some concerns out there that this could re result in adverse selection. The associations could potentially cherry pick healthy individuals. Is there anything in uh, the proposed rule that combats those concerns? Well, to some extent, yes. So they they are imposing some non-discrimination requirements. They they do refer back to the HIPAA non-discrimination rules that prevent, um, for example, um, health status determination. So they can't condition membership, for example, on a health factor, which would be like health status, medical condition, claims experience, genetic uh, information, whether there's disabled or not, um, and they must. Uh, comply with non-discrimination as it pertains to enrollment dates, to eligibility of benefit packages, to the amount of the premiums. So if you think back to the HIPAA requirements, you can remember the idea that you can have various benefits. Um, so you can have discrimination between groups of similarly situated individuals, but not within a group of similarly situated individuals. So how does that idea of similarly situated individuals apply in an AHP context? Well, the department has said it cannot apply at, at the employer level. So you couldn't say that employer A is one group of similarly situated individuals, employer B is a different group, and then have varying premiums because you have different claims experience of these employers. That would definitely create adverse selection because you would then have associations obviously increasing rates for those employers with worse claims experience, with different health status, um, health factors, and that is exactly what they don't want to see. And so they have clamped down on that aspect of it. And so association health plans will have to treat employer members the same as it relates to those ideas. Great. So some protections there in the proposed rule with respect to discrimination and trying to help uh, protect against this idea of adverse selection. Uh, summarize the concerns that are out there with respect to association health plans. Well, I think there's many. We have seen certainly the key stakeholders, many trade associations already submitting comments and at least statements in the news of their opposition to uh, this proposed rule for one reason or another. It really will depend on what hat you're wearing. So if you're a small employer, you would look at this proposed rule and say it really doesn't go far enough because it doesn't eliminate some of those state laws that are barriers to uh, running an, a, an effective association plan, um, especially as those laws pertain to MIWAs. Um, others would say that those MIWA laws are important because it, it helps uh, look at uh, the avoid mismanagement of funds at self-insured MIWA plans. Um, as a small employer, you would look and say, from a federal perspective, this is nice because now I can join together with other small businesses in my area or other small businesses in my trade, and we can join together and uh, be rated potentially as a large group and uh, get some, some more flexibility in our plan design, not be subject to the mandates in the small group market, 
and hopefully bring our premium costs down and uh, be able to potentially be have that plan exist at the association level so it removes the ERISA reporting burdens from me as a small employer. Uh, now, if you're others in the marketplace, you have concerns that by eliminating some of this structure, by making it easier for the association health plans to form, by potentially creating adverse selection situations, um, we are disrupting the marketplace. And if we have these associations forms too easily, we will again go back to those problems that we had back in the 70s and the 80s with these funds being mismanaged. Certainly, if they do as noted in the proposed rule, um, if they uh, the department noted that they have authority under ERISA to exempt self-insured MIWAs from most state regulation. So if they go to that step and now say that they're exempt, these uh, self-insured AHPs will be exempt from state MIWA laws, we will certainly see an outcry because there will need to be some type of oversight over who's managing those funds. Remember, state regulation has really proven to be effective in protecting the consumer's and ensuring that promises that were made by these associations were kept. So we, we haven't seen as many plans failing, association health plans failing. What still remains unclear is uh, whether the AHPs would continue to be subject to the large group market um, or uh, whether they would still be regulated, at least for rating purposes, based on state law at a small group market. So it's not clear on where that stands. They certainly have the idea that at least under federal law, they would be viewed as a large group. Under state law, it's not clear. They could potentially still be viewed as their size based on the employer level. Right. Thanks for that. Great uh, explanation of the, I guess, the pros and cons here of association health plans. Lots um, still to be determined here. Remember, these are just proposed rules. Uh, the process is, is that comments are accepted by the DOL for 60 days. So we're looking at mid-March for a closure on that. And then ho we'll hope for some final rules sometime thereafter. Usually takes a few months at least. Uh, but perhaps by the end of the year, seeing some final rules and maybe some clarity to some of these questions and, and how all, all of this would play out um, if finalized. Yes, I think if they do provide some type of assurance that these plans will have oversight in terms of their financial liquidity and their financial solvency, um, then that will go a long way in making these plans more popular. Right. Well, thanks, Suzanne. As always, we appreciate you explaining things to us. And uh, as we like to say here on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you, Chase. Thanks for joining us.